Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons. My name is Paul and today we're going to be talking about a concept called the long 90s. Uh, this is an idea that I first heard Jeremy Gilbert talk about. He's uh, an academic and one of the co-hosts on ACFM and he's the guest on today's episode. Uh, so he's going to help talk us through um, what this what this idea is, what it means. Obviously, we'll get get into the details of that when we when we start the interview with Jeremy. But just to give you a very rough idea, the long nineties is kind of um, a concept used to talk about the way in which the kind of um, political assumptions and kind of um, culture of the nineties seem to be unusually prolonged in a, in a way that it wasn't before in terms of thinking about uh, how how politics and culture seemed more in flux and open to change throughout through like the 70s the 80s uh and so on again we'll, we'll get into the, the specifics of, of, of all this but 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 um that that gives you hopefully just a, a rough idea but the, the reason i wanted to talk about this is is first of all because i kind of find this um i find the the 90s to be a kind of profoundly anti-utopian moment so talking about about this this uh this period and, and kind of the the way it's kind of um seems to be unnaturally prolonged is, is something that I, f- I thought was interesting and just there's a there's a whole in terms of of talking about this um of thinking of of, of ideas that come out of the un, the long 90s things like cultural stagnation when I mean, you think about utopia as being being something that's about change uh, of about um new possibilities of the new so there's there's some interesting connections there in terms of this idea that's talking about um the opposite of that like this kind of stagnation the the absence of change the absence of of a sense of possibility so yeah, that that's why I uh, wanted to to talk to Jeremy about it. So um, yeah, it's been a while since I've done an episode. Sorry about that. I started a new job over the last couple of months, and yeah, mainly because of that, I just had less time and yeah, haven't been able to do an episode for a while. So sorry, but back again, and hopefully, um, hopefully. I can get the next one, next one out a bit quicker, which is something I always say. Um, just more generally on that, like I've stopped. Uh, people who are subscribed to the Patreon will already know this because I've I've put up on there, but I'm I've stopped doing Patreon bonus episodes because I I just kind of decided to have to be I have to start being more realistic about my time and yeah, just being too spread thing trying to do too many things. I'm just going to focus on the main show now. Um, so that's what I'm going to be doing. There is no, there are going to be no more bonus episodes at the moment. I'm just going to focus on the main podcast and, uh, keep doing that. So yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I really wanted to say up front. So now I'll just leave you with my interview with Jeremy. Joining me now is Jeremy Gilbert. He is a academic at the University of East London, I believe. Is that correct, Jeremy? Yeah. Yeah, and he's one of the, the co-hosts of ACFM. And uh, so thanks very much for joining me, first of all, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for having me. So the, so the reason I, I invited Jeremy on, um, I, I heard him talking about uh, an idea or a concept called the, the long 90s, which is something that uh, I found very in- interesting. And um, we, we're going to talk about a bit and hopefully talk a bit about its relation to utopia. Uh, I, I think utopia is an idea that's inherently connected to the idea of change um, possibility and impossibility of the new and, th- and this idea of the long 90s seem to also be connected to those things or, or opposed to some of those things you might say so I, I think there's some potentially interesting overlaps there so um, to start us off Jeremy I mean we'll, we'll get into the details of it but could you give us a kind of rough overview of what the co- what the, the phrase the long 90s means and where this idea comes from well it's a phrase that other people had used before me although i started using it before i'd gone and checked if anyone else used it but um 
And I started using it, I think, around sort of first around sort of 2014, 2015. But I started using it more around sort of 2015, 2016. And I was using it really to give a name to the thing which seemed to have ended with the election of Corbyn as Labour leader, the um, vote for Brexit, the election of Donald Trump. But also, I mean, also the rise of Syriza in Greece, the collapse of the Labour Party in Scotland. All of these seem seem to mark sort of the end of some sort of an epoch in in politics, at least. Mm. And so, it, the, initially, it was about giving a name to that to that. But it was also related to this. The long nineties is also related to this sense that. You know, you had been growing amongst a number of, uh, sort of commentators and critics really since the beginning of the 2000s that at least in certain ways there had been some real sort of slowdown in, in obvious types of formal innovation in different areas of culture. I mean, you know, I'm mostly focused on music and it, people like Simon Reynolds and Mark Fisher were, were all kind of making the comment quite a lot from, I would say, from about 2005 and, and onwards that... Well, really, the sort of the the period during which one could expect to hear music that was like dramatically different from music you might have heard twenty years previously seemed to have ended. And I was also increasingly struck by the fact just that my you know my undergraduate students, you know, in terms of their dress and their hairstyles and their sort of cultural outlooks, you know, really just weren't sort of strikingly different from one decade to the next, like during the 2000s, in the way you might have expected them to be, like the 70s or 80s, into sometime in the 90s. So the idea of the long 90s was sort of trying to cover all of that, uh, but it's not a totally coherent concept, and it's sort of elastic, and different people use it in different ways, and it's not clear that it means the same thing if you're talking about, like, politics or or culture, or if, you're, or if you're talking about the economy. So it's a suggestive term that lots of people have found useful to sort of think with. Um, but it, uh, but it's not, I can't claim that it's sort of totally coherent. And it's, and it's really unclear, you know, whether you know, the long night is ended in 2015, or whether actually, in some senses, we're still in it. Oh, yeah. So it, I, mean, I mean, one of the one of the obvious things that that people might say when you, you you talk about like there's, there's been no kind of new music or, or culture hasn't changed or something people might just say oh well you you're just like you're, you're just too old you just you you would say the but that's you know, not something that's not that just isn't something old people have traditionally said you know older people have traditionally been like excessively alienated by the apparent novelty of culture so even if it's true that cultural changes now in some sense really is happening but is invisible to like older people. That mm. itself is a big shift. And I think that is partly true. Um, I think that is partly true. But it's also, look, you know, um, you know, my job is mainly teaching like music students in their early 20s. Like if you, unless you think I'm really a complete moron, then I'm capable <laughs> of like working out, you know, <laughs> whether my relationship to culture is, and be, uh, is being completely, is defined by, you know, my age or not. So it's just, um, but I do think, I mean, the whole issue around, that whole issue around novelty, I have to say, it, I, I think it's sort of, I think it's important to sort of clarify some points on it. Because it is, because firstly, the people in my experience who are the least defensive about that claim are indeed people at, like actively involved in music culture, like in their early 20s. Like my experience of, of working with people like that is, it's not only do they completely accept the proposition, well, like there, there was a particular period of a few decades of intense formal innovation and we're not in that period anymore. They think it's sort of, you know, it's sort of old-fashioned to be really upset about it. Like they think it's really, okay. it's, it, it's sort of old-fashioned and it's something that's typical of sort of, more typical of certain sort of cohorts of millennials to be like really defensive and say, no, no, you're wrong. You know, like this, this micro development in like post-dubstep electronica is just as important as the invention of Jungle was or something. I mean, there's, I mean, there are people I know who are really quite, really young and they're really immersed in music culture. They think that itself is sort of a really old-fashioned sort of response. But I also think, I think it's really, it's also, but it's also sort of old fashioned. And I think they're right, because, I mean, one of the issues around, one of the problems with talking about these issues, or one of the things you have to think about when talking about these issues is, well, I mean, I mean, part of the problem with the way in which 
concepts like um, retromania, which is how Simon Reynolds described the sort of culture of the early two thousands, and sort of and Mark mm. Fisher's sort of very very you know pessimistic comments about the sort of exhaustion of culture, like in the early two thousands. I mean, part of the problem with that approach is that it tended to assume a set of things you know as just sort of normal that are not necessarily historically normal so it tended to assume that for example having this you know period of intense formal innovation in music which you have i think sort of from the 70s and then sort of uh, sort of taining off from the mid 90s is you know is something that's really historically normal which i don't think it is if you look at a longer historical time frame okay but but also more fundamentally i think I mean, increasing. I've, I've have sort of started to refine the way I think about this issue, which I think is important to think about. Which is that, well, really, you know, for like my generation, like my generation, Simon, you know, I'm fifty. So, you know, um, Mark was like a couple, you know, four years older than me. Um, Simon Reynolds, I think, is about you know four or five years older than me. For the, for our sort of gen, this sort of Gen X generation, this idea that well, how you knew that things were changing was well, fashion was changing, music was changing. You know, it's that like that famous that line from Train Spotting. I always like to quote: "Like music's changing, fashion's changing, drugs are changing." You know, the the, the idea was that well, that's how you know like things are changing. Mm. Whereas I think actually that's really a specific experience. That's the experience of Gen X. That's the experience of the generation who grew who were growing up when there was no real chance of any significant political change. So you just, if you wanted to feel like you were really living through history, you had to be really obsessed with, you know, the difference between like your hairstyle and that of somebody five years younger, older than you. And um, yeah. and I think actually what's been happening since the late, early, since the end of the millennium, really, since the end of the twentieth century, is that, well, things we've been through going through dramatic social economic changes. They just they register in different ways. Like they don't register in that much in like you know radically different new forms of dance music emerging every 18 months but you know they register instead in in the fact that people can't get jobs in houses and they're like you know the political attitudes are shifting yeah so i think it's important not to reproduce the assumption that if i say well there hasn't been really the same level of dramatic musical innovation formal innovation in music that what i'm saying is like everything is totally shit and everyone's a dickhead you know, I'm not like it's not because that is. I mean, that is what that meant for like Simon and Mark. You know, because they were so they were very obsessed with music culture. So when they started saying this stuff in blogs and the music press, it was really saying something sort of apocalyptic about the culture, saying, "Oh, there's no new music, therefore everything's shit." And I sort of think that that, but I've sort of come to realise more in the past sort of three or four years that that itself is a really specific sort of Gen X response to things. And it should be more, we should be more saying, well, okay, like novelty is not registering, it's, it's not being registered in, in, you know, in, the, in music in the same way that it once was. But, but, you know, it's being registered in other places and it's being experienced in other ways in other, and, and in some ways, you know, more important ways. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the things I'm interested in is when we, we're talking about these, these kind of big um, shifts occurring and slowing down, uh, what 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 would you identify as being like the the last kind of big shift that happened? And and to realize this is the reason that this is interesting me is partly because I feel it's quite alien to me because I grew up in the nineties primarily. Um, I mean the the the, the late nineties would have been sort of a teenager. So within my kind of late teen or teenage adult life, I kind of primarily in this period we were talking about cultural shifts not happening so it's kind of it's kind of um I, I i feel like i was kind of we've we've been primarily talking about culture here i guess but i i feel like i grew up being aware of not not in these terms but being taught that i was in like an end of history context yeah like that yeah. that not obviously at school like nobody used that term but just the the, the idea that by the, the time i'd grown up like i was the soviet union was already like a thing of the past i was like in the the world as it as it was as it was gonna be like the, the, this was this was kind of it i don't i i haven't experienced that thing that you talked about of like seeing a new like a big musical innovation happening and like not being able to conceptualize it because it's so alien to what you've known before so yeah i'm interested as to like what when you feel like the last time this this happened was because it's kind of a weird thing for me to to get my head around well i think if you're talking about music if you're just talking about music then right. um 
you know, a sort of a, a definitive experience, you know, for people of sort of my cohort was was jungle, um, right. and then sort of mutating into drum and bass. So this was a, a music which sounded just completely unlike anything you could have imagined hearing sort of five or six years previously. And it, and it really did seem to change sort of musical possibilities. Like, the, you know, the, a world, the world in which, you know, Ronnie Sides is winning the Mercury Music Prize is a very different musical world from the one that had existed sort of 10 years earlier. Um, and it's quite different. I mean, it's different even from things like sort of dubstep and grime being new. But even when, I think even when, when dubstep and grime were relatively new, you know, they seem, I would say grime more than dubstep, really. Grime, you know, it sounded very distinctive. I mean, you could sort of say, well, it's, you could see the elements it was drawing on of kind of 80s sort of dancehall and, and the 90s sort of um, jungle and drum and bass. Mm. Um, but it was very distinctive, and it and it and it really sounded like it was redefining sort of musicality in some way. But what I would also say is that those changes, and this is where again I sort of would differ from sort of critics who I think are sort of themselves a bit stuck in the nineties in some way. That really those innovations were nothing compared to the, the huge kind of innovations of the seventies, which they were all kind of derived from in some way. You go back to the seventies, you've got punk rock. You've got disco, you've got electro modern electronic music, beginning with Kraftwerk. You've got dub and everything that comes from dub and reggae. You've got hip hop. All those things emerged for the first mm. time in the 70s. Now, that is a real... And really, the 70s is completely unique. Now, you can see there's a sort of build-up to the 70s over previous decades, with like rock and roll and jazz and what have you. But it's the really what needs to be explained from a sort of historian's perspective is the 70s. It's the 70s that needs to be explained. It's the 70s are sort of extraordinary. And, right. and, um, and everything else is, you know, I often, I mean, I, you know, it, it doesn't happen so much now. Sort of 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I used to, it was quite common for my sort of students to be quite nostalgic about the 90s. They would look back to like the early 90s. It's like you know, the early phase of rave. As, mm -hmm. as being indeed, as you would say, the last time, like something you could really point to in the culture and say, look, there, there is a thing that happened. Like punk happened and, you know, electronic mm. music happened and rave happened. And then after that, really nothing happens. Everybody still just goes to raves of some kind. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was an example. But I used to say to them, look, the only thing that was good about the 90s it was, is it was closer to the 70s because that, <laughs> that was when everything really happened. And, uh, you, know, and I, you know, I was a little kid then. I wasn't aware of any of this, you know, um, so I think, um, so I think, and I think that is because, you know, that is all tied. I mean, you've talked about politics and the end of history and, and my whole thesis will be, well, these things are all really intimately tied together. Look, the seventies is like the last time on a global scale, there was any serious prospect that the, um, the conflict, the global conflict between, you know, different ways of organizing society wasn't going to be won by liberal capitalism. You know, by the end of the seventies, it's pretty obvious, you know, it's the liberal capitalism is winning and by the end of the 80s it has won it has decisively won it's like the dominant global economic system and so i think and it's the shrinking and i think there's a direct correlation between a sense of sort of political and economic possibility and, and sort of senses of creative possibility in, in fields like music so i think you can't but i think in those terms you can't really it's hard to, to it's hard to pinpoint um single sort of breaking points i mean you're completely you're right that like the end of the soviet union in global terms is a, is a key point but i think it's more a sense of things i think things are sort of slowing down really from the early 80s in some sense like and they keep slowing down to, to be to the point of being of, of, of almost sort of imperceptibility to by the early 2000s but so i sort of think um uh, you know and i don't think and i i certainly think like you know for my cohort it was already it was you know i was you know it was it was also the case really like i was 18 when when the balloon wall came down that was the year i turned 18 so mm. i was i mean i was 17 when it happened so i think um so yeah it was already it was also the case really it was already the case for us mm. that our only our only our earliest political memories were of the, the total defeat of the left you know both locally and globally and it was also the case that really we grew up. This is something that people don't really understand, I think, and it's, it isn't really talked about. I don't, I don't know anyone who's written about this properly, but, you know, Gen X, we grew up already. Our culture was totally saturated by boomer nostalgia, you know, like nostalgia for the 50s and 60s, just completely saturated, like film, TV and, and to some extent music culture, certainly sort of film and TV, certainly like TV coverage of music culture. 
you know, from from by, from when I was about eleven, really. So we had this. So we sort of internalised this idea, and we got it really from sort of boomer TV producers and DJs, radio DJs, that will what it meant to live in history was was like <laughs> your music and your fashion kind of gave you a sense of historical identity but that was always it was always bullshit really because we were already in this phase that you've described when nothing was ever really going to change like nothing ever really could change and i think that the that sense of kind of cultural innovation apparently continuing into the early 2000s i think it was it was sort of true but it was really just after echoes i mean all that you know drum and bass and everything from drum and bass to grime it's just it's just sort of reverberations of dub and hip hop from the 70s that's just mm. it's just kind of like it's the dying echoes of that great eruption so I think it's so I think it's really in some ways I think sort of um in some ways I sort of I mean I you know I'm glad people find the term long 90s evocative and I do I still use it but in some ways it it can kind of it can be mystifying because it because I think it's what's distinctive about the 90s and where the idea of the long 90s I think is most useful is it's really it's by it's by some time in the 90s that everybody starts to realize well this is it now like we're stuck in mm. this a particular kind of neoliberal culture in which nothing really new can happen anyway. Like, you, you know, nothing really new can happen because because the politics and economics can't change. And and all the really important, and everything we're doing in music is really just, you know, derived from stuff happening in the 70s anyway. And I, I think it's in the 90s that people start to really, you start that starts to become really discernible. And the sense that that sort of continues, you know, for decades, I guess is what I kind of refer to by the term sort of long 90s. Yeah. So what's the what what's the like what's the way you see like the relationship between politics and culture here like are, are you are you kind of suggesting that uh political possibility is kind of like um like the basis for for culture like for for cultural change like is it the is it the yeah is it like I, I, it's directly is it kind of direct correlation like that the, the I think the, well the I think closing? I Sorry. think, yeah, two levels. So, I mean, there's a really mundane socioeconomic level at which, well, if you don't have kind of material infrastructure that means people can eat, they're not <laughs> going to make culture and they're certainly not going to be able to innovate very much. And to some extent, yeah, what you have in the 60s and 70s is the outcome of the, is the kind of the mid 20th century welfare reforms, which create a kind of social safety net and create... A government's, you know, committed to full employment, which mean that well, you can even people who aren't rich, you know, can become kind of creative artists. I mean, really, for the first time in history. I mean, now we would have to say for the only time in history, because because they've they've done their best to kill all that over the past twenty years. So, yeah. so of course, so that basic material infrastructure is obviously going to create kind of extraordinary, um, extraordinary, you know, uh, senses of possibility. I think. Um, if you're talking just about music, I think there has to be a correlation between the fact that, you know, there's this intense period of musical innovation, which is also, which is mostly, I mean, the most important on obvious way in which it's related to, um, related to politics is that it's clearly related to black liberation you know, in the States, in the Caribbean and, and the kind of global de decolonization movement. Mm. clearly i mean there's no reggae without the de global decolonization movement there's no hip-hop actually without a sort of you know hip-hop emerges out of you sort of you know partly emerges out of you know the the, the militants black militancy of the 70s but it also emerges mm. out of the failure it's the direct consequence i think of, of the sort of mm. failure of that black militancy but you can't um and it's defeat you know, but also, you know, dance music, you know, is clearly associated with, you know, gay liberation and, you know, women's liberation during the same period. You know, punk is clearly influenced by women's liberation in the way that it's sort of questioning uh, received forms of masculinity and the way they've been expressed in rock music. So I think it's, um, you know, if you, I mean, anyone who was going to say there's no correlation, the onus of proof is on them, frankly. Like, I'm just, I think I'm just pointing out the obvious to some extent. I mean, how the relationship works is... Well, I do, I sort of think, I think there does have to be, see, there's this phrase that people, which is actually from Steve Bannon, you know, this, um, you know, this Trump advisor, this kind of alt-right figure, mm. 
that politics is downstream from culture that somehow that it's really and there's a certain strand of you know my own discipline cultural studies and a certain strand of left thinking which is quite attached to the idea that somehow sort of culture becomes a space of resistance and expression um even when the political sphere is being sort of constrained and and etc and i would have to say i don't honestly think the political rec- the historical record really bears that out mm-hmm. i don't i just don't think it does really um i think that's an in cultural studies that's an idea that sort of became popular in the 80s because there's a specific window especially in british culture in the 80s when you can say you know, Thatcher's completely dominating the political scene, but like Channel right. 4 is happening and, you know, the the legacy of Rock Against Racism and Red Wedge is happening. But so there's a moment when it looks like, yeah, like fashion and music and even TV might be exciting spheres of resistance and whereas politics looks totally fucked. But, but that is a very narrow view of what's going on at that time and it doesn't really take account of the his- histories which have produced that situation. So I think from a, from a sort of historical point of view... I think you have to say that, yeah, generally speaking, I, I do think the sort of cultural, I think big periods of cultural and artistic innovation, I think they do, they they occur when there is an expanded sense of political possibility, I think. Okay. Having said that, do, do you think there's any kind of value to, because ex- explicitly talking about like utopia now and if like people are thinking about uh alternative forms of political organizing or whatever if, if somebody's thinking about how to create a better society let's say right if they're when people talk about utopia in that way they, they tend to be in the territory of the political like they're talking about how should a society be organized like how does the economy work uh etc cetera, etc cetera. uh they don't normally talk about culture that much like do, do you think like if people are people say if people want to be utopian if people want to to create a better world and think about creating a better world do they have to think about culture or do do you think that really like that that that's kind of in the way we've just been talking about like that new new culture will emerge out of the politics because because, and again just this just to relate to something you said earlier you were talking about it seems to to be like you were you were saying that there was almost a period where you said that the, the way you, you knew things were changing through the way you knew things were changing were through uh kind of like a fashion or, or, or whatever and you, you were kind of suggesting that was almost like a a false sense of change because because politics had had um kind of um kind of stalled so i i wonder if if um because if we if we want to think about the idea of change being possible of like there being a future like like culture can kind of make you feel like a future's coming because of something that's radically new but it seems like you're, you're kind of also kind of suggesting that that can't happen without the actual material conditions changing uh, i think it can't it, it, it I mean that future can't be realized without the material conditions changing i certainly think culture and art can play a role in giving people a sense right. of what's possible of what's you know I'm, I'm supposed to do a book about this in a, in a few in a couple of years about with relation to music and you know my line on this is always um you know music can create a sense of possible right. worlds you know it can and and i think the utopian dimension i mean you know that i think i mean if you're talking about the example of the 70s yeah the relationship is complicated because the music of that period is expressing a sense of utopian possibility which is way ahead of, of where the politics mm-hmm. actually is at that time but it's the fact that the politics still the political sphere still has you know, a, a degree of you know, scope in it and possibility in it that I think enables that. So, it, you know, when they when these things work together productively, there's a sort of, you know, I think there's a sort of mutually amplifying cycle, if you like, between sort of cultural innovation and political innovation. And so I think certainly art and culture can play a role. Um, but to some extent, you know, there's always a, there's off, there's a fine line. There can be a fine line between utopianism mm-hmm. and escapism, right? Um, and I think escapism is when ultimately um, utopianism becomes detached from any serious project that would make the re- make the sort of concrete realization mm. of its utopias possible. Um, and I think that does often happen; it doesn't always, but it often does. Um, and I think it is dangerous, to be honest. I mean, when I'm, and I think it is a sort of, it is something you have to one has to be sort of wary of. But it doesn't. But that's not the only form which utopian culture can take. So I think. You know, I think the I think utopian culture, I think it is, and I think I do, and that's absolutely the case that um, 
so if projects for political reform that have no relationship with utopian culture are just sterile i think they just they inevitably just descend into you know forms of authoritarianism or forms of sort of ameliorative reform that don't actually change anything um so i think that is really important it is really important but i think both i think both sides of that are important and historically I mean, I would say, if, if I'm honest, like historically, partly because, you know, because of my the generational experience I, I had, you know, I come out of and, you know, the forms of politics that were like to the left of the Labour Party for much of that period were quite utopian and not very at all strategic and, and were completely ineffectual, to be honest, for like 30 years. Um, I tend, you know, I've tended to, I've become very sort of attuned to and very sort of, you know, you know I tend to be get very anxious about people wanting to make sort of utopian culture, uh, you know, their, their, uh, you know, their sole focus, because I, th I think it does, that often does just tend to escapism. Like if it's, if it, that's the only thing you're doing is doing something which you, you know, whether it's art or music or something which you imagine to be mm. somehow prefigurative of, you know, something, but you don't have any sort of interest in the question of, well, how might it, how might that prefiguration turn into figuration, then, then I think then you are very easily, you, I mean, very, those forms of culture actually are the ones that very easily get recuperated and exploited by, yeah. by capital, I think. So, so I think, the, but I think it's really important. I think it's, in, but I think, but, but I sort of think both sides of it are important. So I definitely think there is, there is a value um, to, um, and I would also say, I mean, just, you know, I think, um, I think uh, like in Britain over the past sort of five or six years, like one of the most encouraging things for me has been the fact that there's, we've both seen a kind of revival of the, the main the sort of political left with a focus on electoral politics rather than just you know you know rather than exclusively you know sort of spectacular protest um but you know the most interesting strands of that you know organizations like the world transformed um you know things like navara media for example they um you know they do they have maintained a really you know, lively interest in you know innovative sort of utopian forms of, of, of creative expression like without losing a sort of sense of the strategic dimension of politics so I don't. I, it's not something I'm really worried about at the moment. Actually, it's more. It's more something that I think sort of explains the complete ineffectuality of radical culture and politics. You know, during really from sort of the end of the eighties up until about twenty fifteen, which probably is the period of the long nineties. And I do think, yeah. I mean, was it? It yeah. Basically, I would say. I mean, in very simple, crude terms, yeah. And this, you know, my generation in particular, we were we were offered historically unprecedented opportunities for self-expression and, and private sort of self-fulfillment in the marketplace you know this was the nature mm. of post-fordist capitalism in in return for just being completely acquiescent mm. politically really in just acquiescing to neoliberal hegemony or only engaging in forms of resistance to neoliberal hegemony that turned out to be just completely ineffective that were predictably to be honest were obviously going to be totally ineffectual you know just sort of street protests that were, were, were amusing but posed no threat whatsoever to neoliberal hegemony. So I think it was, yeah. So I guess I am, you know, personally, I am quite wary these days. I'm I'm quite wary of, you know, people of looking to culture to be a sort of source of satisfaction um, of problems which are, or which are fundamentally political and economic in nature. Because, but I think um, that, but absolutely that doesn't rule out at all the the need for forms of culture which are genuinely genuinely utopian and genuinely expanding our sort of imaginative horizons and, and promoting a different ways of being in the world to those which are made available by neoliberal capitalism or post well we're not in neoliberal capitalism anymore really sort of post neoliberal capitalism hmm. so one thing you you mentioned like early on was you were originally like using this term to to talk about a period that you felt was coming to an end in terms of, um, yeah, like a, a Cor Corbyn in the, U in the UK and uh, various other things that were happening around the world. Uh, how do you view that now, given that, like, I mean, obviously, the, for, if we if we stick with that example, um, the kind of uh, the rallying around of, of the status quo to kind of squash that as much as possible and if if you look at the Corbett's replacement that feels like the most long 90s replacement you could have in in, in Keir Starmer so 
I mean, how do you think of the? Do you see this as like an, an extension of 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 the long nights that you thought was coming to an end, or is, it, is this something else? Well, I think this is you get into you know periodizing concepts like the long nights always have to be handled with care and are always of limited use. And I would say another way of understanding well, what what kind of thing is the phrase the long night is referring to? Mm -hmm. Is that what it's referring to is what Raymond Williams would have called a structure of feeling sort of pattern of ways of responding to the world and assumptions and feelings which can be typical of particular social groups in particular times and at sometimes it can a structure of feeling can come to be very widely extended over like maybe most of the society that it, that it emerges from and at other times it can be more you know specifically inhabited by more you know discrete social groups and I would say as a sort of historical period in the long 90s I do think ends in 2015 like that's it um, it, we're into something else. I mean, it might be worse, but we're into something else. But I also think there's a social, there's a particular social set of social groups that, um, which includes nearly all of the professional political class in Britain, the kind of upper echelons of the professional managerial class, uh, quite large sections of the, of the more the affluent or professional classes, and those are the people. They are the people who basically, to put it very crudely. Um, they didn't really suffer that much long term from Thatcherism and its consequences. They positively benefited um, from new labour and especially from the property boom, the very long property boom, which new labour oversaw and, and kept stoking. And they really have no, they don't really understand the extent to which almost everyone in the public sector you know, was at best ambivalent about new labour and its legacy and they have they really don't understand like the the mess which the housing and labour market has been left in for younger people mm. and those people very much still inhabit you know now to an almost you know to an uh, in an almost psychotic way you know, they inhabit a, a long 90s structure of feeling which is completely in denial about the fact that any of these material changes have happened and which can't see them uh, and this was a point made by m my friend Nadia on our podcast ACFM, you know, that also because they are, we're talking there about mainly about people my generation who I've been describing, mm. because they're not hearing like radically new music that just doesn't sound like music to them. And they're not seeing young people even wearing clothes that look like radically different from the ones they were wearing 20 years previously. Mm. And because they, like me, were basically trained to think, well, that's how you know change is happening. They think they can keep telling themselves nothing has fundamentally changed since 1997, mm. and that basically a Blairite political program is the is the is the correct response to the situation, and is the only possible response one could make to the current political situation. So, in that sense, the long 90s continues, but it's but it's continued like it's kind of narrowed in scope. Like these people are still inside it, and the rest of us are outside it. Yeah, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And um, that, and that is why I think that explains why they're so completely ineffectual. You know, it's why you know Starmer's such a disaster. I think this is probably quite differentiated between different national contexts. So I, I mean, even within the UK, I don't think the U, the long nineties is not continuing in Scotland. It is clearly totally over in Scotland. Uh, it's probably over in Wales, frankly, the way things are going. It's pretty specific to England in some ways. This, the continual kind of attachment of this, you know, small but powerful section of the population to the, its continuation, and in the states, you know, you've got the the Biden presidency is you know is trying. We don't know yet ultimately what they're going to get through Congress, but they're attempting to implement a program which is more progressive than any uh, presidency has has implemented since the sixties. So. In all those senses, yeah. I, I, I do think people on the left in Britain, the sort of Corbynite left in Britain, have really allowed themselves, they've allowed the kind of highly depressive conditions of the pandemic and the disappointment of 2019 to really kind of over... There's far, you know, really kind of... They've allowed themselves to become far too... Um, I just think far too sort of depressed and pessimistic, you know, about the political situation. I mean, you know, Starmer is, Starmer's project is clearly not sustainable, you, know, you cannot do, and I think Starmer and his people have been behaving like they know perfectly well they're probably not they're not going to be uh, in charge of the Labour Party for more than another couple of years, and so they're going they have to do as much damage as they possibly can mm. to their factional rivals in the time 
for them. And I, I do, I do sort of wish people would, you know, buck up a bit and, you know, accept it. This, this is a bad, you know, we're going, we're living through the backlash against the sort of end of the long nineties in various ways, but we're not, they have, they do not have the power to turn back time and put us back in it. Mm. You know, they, they might think they've done that and they might wish they could have done that. And they very much want us to believe that they've done that, but they haven't. Which is why, you know, Boris Johnson, as like appalling as he is, is clearly not, he's not a long 90s politician, really. He's not, he's a very different, I mean, he might be worse. <laughs> but, you know, the, the long 90s is a period when like you, you had to be, you had to look very slick and professional, even if you were completely incompetent. Mm you know, to become a prime minister, you know, and Johnson's whole appeal is that he doesn't look like those things at all. Mm. You know, he obviously isn't. And so I think, so I think in all those senses, I think, you know, and, and that's why, I mean, really, you know, one reasons why that kind of network of political actors, including UKIP, Farage, sections of the tabloid press, you know, the, the Johnson's Tory party have been politically successful over the past couple of years is because you know consciously or otherwise they have re they have realized that the long 90s is over and they had to come up with they've come up with a different project and um but you know the project of the kind of right wing of the labor party is just to keep pretending it isn't over or, or to try to magically bring it back in some way yeah so, um sw switching topics a bit and and just kind of returning to the the the, the realm of culture i suppose um a lot of people what one of the the things in terms of like expecting like new cultural forms to emerge and things like that like one of the things that obviously distinguishes the 90s from the post-millennium would be the internet and a lot of people would assume this is a this is a radical change not and therefore it should be the driver of like a radical new radical cultural forms new radical political forms do, do you think that's the case in, 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 in to any extent or, or and if not what why do you have any ideas to why that that's not proved to be the case okay well that's quite complicated so again when i first started talking about the, the long 90s the phrase i kept using was um everything is changing but no everything has changed but nothing has changed mm -hmm. so it was and it was and it was very much about this sense that you know, if I ask students, I, I used to, you know, I used to have a course where I would ask students, you know, who are usually people in their early 20s, like every year, like, if you would, what is it that defines our present that makes it different from the past? Mm -hmm. And at some point in the early 2000s, they stopped saying anything about the actual content of culture and just started talking about technology. Uh, and for a while, I found this sort of frustrating. And then eventually, I realised, oh, actually, they're right. <laughs> what's happened is, like, you know, technology has sort of radically changed. Um, and but the content, the stuff we're watching. I mean, you know, my great example of of the persistence of long nineties culture is, and this was only like eighteen months ago. This statistic was being bandied about was Netflix. You know, what could be more contemporary than Netflix? But what's the most popular show on Netflix? It was Friends. Right. Um, so, and and that, and that was true with like twelve year olds, not not with you know just with sort of adults or people who remembered that time. Mm. So, so that seemed to me to be very kind of a, a sort of exemplary of uh, long nineties culture. And I think yeah, there are fairly, but you can get into some quite hard. And but there's a few things to say about this. So one is that look, the technology has changed. But technology itself doesn't change things or, or conserve things. Like what changes or conserves things is changes or, is changes or, or consistencies in power relations. Mm -hmm. And the power relations have not changed. I mean, my argument is that basically the kind of hegemonic, uh, you know, what we call sometimes in, we call in Gramscian terminology, the social block, the kind of group assemblage of social forces, who, who, which is hegemonic really globally, really hasn't changed since the end of the Cold War. It's basically been some sort of alliance between Silicon Valley and, and finance capital, which has been the most powerful force in the world. And you could you could throw in the Chinese Communist Party. They're the three most powerful forces in the world. And that hasn't really changed at all since the since the early nineties, since um, you know, you started hearing about the information subhighway in nineteen ninety four. And because that hasn't changed, it produces a particular sense of sort of stasis, I think, in, in culture, which is just people re actually re recognising that at the fundamental level of power relationships, nothing has changed, really. Um, uh, so that's one way of sort of thinking about that question. And um, 
And I think it is, there's a few interesting, other interesting things to say in response to that question, because, of course, the sense that oh, nothing was changing and this is not what, this is not the future we were promised, which became really acute around sort of 2005, I think for people sort of my age and, and people like Simon Reynolds, it was partly indeed a mismatch between our kind of our optimism and our excitement about what the world of digital technology would mean for music in particular, say in the mid 90s. You know, we thought that the advance of digital technology and the internet would definitely mean that by sort of 2005, you would be hearing just an impossible range of musics, right? Just impossible, an unimaginable range of different kinds of music. Mm. And it turned out that we weren't hearing that at all. We were just hearing much the same, you know, very slight variations on the same themes. And, and I think, you know, that does... And I think that certainly just that challenges any idea that music, the technology itself is a sort of driver rather than something that facilitates the sort of expression of power relationships. Mm. Does that, I think there's another sort of interesting thing to say about the technological stuff. And this is a point I do, I've, I've made to sort of history students before, which I think is interesting to think about is that, well, it's true that we've lived through this great technological revolution, but it sort of isn't, it doesn't have the quality of a kind of surprising future coming out of nowhere. Because when I was a student in the early 90s, like we all knew the internet was coming. Like every, we, we knew about modems and we knew about networking and everybody knew. Now, once you started to see the windows, graphical windows on computers, everybody sort of knew. And the first laptops in the early 2000s, everybody knew we were going to have like video phones, you know, that we could carry around like by the early 2000s. Mm. That's just what we were expecting. You know, there's that quote from David Berry from years and years ago, which I've always assumed he must have just been talking to, you know, you know, or somebody where he said, oh, music's going to become something you just sort of have on tap you know, rather than something right. you have to carry around in recorded objects. But Bowie says this, like, it's like 20 odd years ago, like, we all knew streaming was going to happen. So in the sense that, well, actually, yeah, we're in the future now, but it's exactly the future that everybody was expecting, like 25 years ago, um, also creates this sort of sense that, well, you know, the, the sense of sort of, you know, there isn't this real sense of sort of radical novelty. And I think that is largely because it was already the case. It's not something people only have only really started to notice the extent to which like Silicon Valley is like a sort of dominant force in global culture, really over the past sort of five years or so. But actually, if you go back and you look at what was really driving sort of changing expectations and assumptions among sort of politicians and policymakers and people in the city and Wall Street, uh, really from the late 80s, like it's all there's already a very close relationship between like the you know the, the IT industries and um, finance capital and that's and it's that sense that those things haven't really changed um, I do think I sort of think uh, to the extent that the long 90s is a period that I think existed and, and has sort of ended I do think there has been a shift since about 2015 even at that level but it's a fairly small shift it's really a shift I mean this is really after the 2008 financial crash um, clearly, I think finance capitals globally have really lost a lot of its kind of authority and its moral authority, and has lost a lot of its capacity. Uh, and I think it, and I think it's now clearly the case that Silicon Valley is, is much, much more the kind of dominant partner in that relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my big example of this is cryptocurrency. I would say, to, I, just, I just think almost everything everyone on the left says about cryptocurrency is stupid because they don't understand what, what it really means. Like it's not. I'm not interested in whether it's good or bad and, or, you know, destroying the planet or not destroying the planet or, you know, I'm not interested in whether Bitcoin's going to crash tomorrow or not. That's not the point for me. The point is, look, what is it? It is an experiment to see if the, if the technology sector can do something which no other section of the capitalist class has ever been able to do in the past 400 years, and that is to break the monopoly that the banks have enjoyed since the 17th century on, on having the power to create money mm. you know it's an experiment on the part of Silicon Valley can create our own and they have conclusively demonstrated that they can you know obviously they can even if Bitcoin goes down tomorrow they've clearly shown they can do it they have the capacity to do it and that is that and in terms of the sort of history of sort of intra-capitalist sort of class relations that's huge so that there is a shift uh, that, that i think we are living through we have lived through a sort of shift and the shift is really that the fact that you know the banks are not the most powerful section of the capitalist class anymore it's really it is kind of you know it is the big platform uh, companies in silicon valley who are now the most powerful section of the capitalist class and that has various kind of knock-on effects 
but also I think the big change since 2000, the big change really since also since 2015 and what 2015 really marked at the level of, of politics and culture as most people live it is that sort of professional political class that I talked about before, the, the people who in Britain are still completely attached to the culture and assumptions of the long 90s. Mm. They, lo they lost their hegemony. They didn't lose all their institutional power, but they lost their ability to convince most people that they were legitimate and that their way of looking at the world was the only way of looking at the world. Mm. And that has really changed. And I think that has started... To, I do think it started to have changes in, in the wider culture. I mean, I think in music, you know, I think... I don't see us going back, you know, we haven't had anything, you know, I still haven't heard a record, I would say. It's not even true, actually. So I think in some, I even, I think in some areas of music, like perhaps what, what we might call, you know, not kind of mass pop music, but um, uh, certainly I think in jazz, for example, I think, you know, there's a lot of really interesting jazz coming out of Britain and the States, uh, which in fact is very utopian in its kind of psychedelic aesthetic, and which... It does clearly kind of refer back to sort of jazz in the sort of psychedelic jazz in the seventies, but I d I can't imagine having heard it any time in the eighties or nineties or up until about two thousand ten really, mm. um, and so, and I think also you know I think in hip hop there's clearly I mean there's always you know I think I think in some strands of hip hop there's clearly been a sort of repoliticization of certain sets of attitudes. I don't think that's dominant. I mean I think you know but um. You can see in film, I mean, I'm thinking about things that are related to sort of black politics. You see, you see films like, you know, um, like Sorry to Bother You, which I think is like one of the most, you know, uh, one of the most interesting sort of pieces of radical filmmaking of the past 30 years. Um, I think BLM itself it is a manifestation of that process by which that, that kind of professional political class kind of lost its authority because I think no one ultimately exemplified the sort of culture and values of the long 90s more than Obama mm. and the fact that Obama wasn't able to do anything like for actual black people in America <laughs> like you know provoked a real sort of crisis so I think things are, are so I think so in all those ways I think we are in a different period and I think you know even for you know um and in, in music, I think I think it is happening that actually, to some extent, that that kind of um, promise, the um, platforms and the internet and new technologies would be a, would facilitate, um, you know, sort of certain kinds of musical creativity. I think you can look at some areas of of music culture and say, well, that is finally starting to happen. I would look at something like Bandcamp and say, well, you know, which is like one of the more you know, Bandcamp is a platform that is, an, is, is, you know, it, insofar as people use it, you know, it is kind of enabling, you know, it does enable, you know, uh, artists with quite small, you know, audiences, you know, to keep most of the profits on their work. And it does sort of facilitate, um, it does, it does sort of facilitate and encourage certain kinds of innovation. And I think we're very early on in that process as well. So I think, um, and I think, of course, you can also, I mean, this is just sort of speculative and it's quite sort of boring to say, but there's also, um, you know, there's, there's also one has to take account of the possibility that, you know, if you're just talking about music, that, well, we went through a period of kind of massive technological change when really the technology was, I mean, old technologies were being sort of disrupted, made redundant, but the new ones weren't yet really up to doing the job. So from a sort of audio perspective like it's only really it's only really the past couple of years that you can it's quite relatively easy to like listen to music online and it not sound like shit really. mm. um you know people i know people think like i know on one level it's it's clearly true that the age of internet music has been sort of 20 years old but it just sounded fucking dreadful until like a couple of years ago literally so so i don't know really i don't know what's going to happen and what's going to come out of all that but i'm um, I'm certainly think I do sort of think I think even at that sort of level, you know, coming out of the long nineties doesn't mean we're going back to the seventies. But you know, the seventies mm. was like the culm in some ways it was the culmination of like two hundred years of history of of the the industrial revolution and the the cycle of kind of revolutionary politics mm. that begins with the French Revolution and carries right on um, up until nineteen sixty eight in some ways. It was, in some ways, it was the culmination of all those things. So you can't you shouldn't use that as the benchmark. And I think in a lot of ways, for me, I think, you know, I think I, I feel a lot more optimistic kind of listening to music now, you know, looking at cinema now, like even sort of TV, I guess, and things. I feel a lot more optimistic now than I did 
like in 2000 you know sort of 2010 to be honest yeah but what, what one one final question does that if, if we're kind of saying that we we've we're entering a new era that, that the long 90s is over is this is this an era where you you kind of see that you see as um kind of reopening the door to utopianism by which i mean well when I, I to be clear i'm, I'm talking about utopia in, in quite a broad way just in terms of the yeah, idea sure. that change is possible <laughs> because I, I think of the 90s as being inherently anti-utopian in the sense yeah, of, of yeah. nobody really believed that like, yeah change was- yeah let's be clear for the sake of, of tying the the podcast theme to the long 90s theme yeah absolutely i mean the long 90s was it i mean if anything defined the long 90s structure of feeling or the period during which that structure of feeling was hegemonic it was the belief that nothing could possibly be better than you know post fordist neoliberal capitalism that was as good i mean there was a certain i mean there was a strand of liberal utopianism which believed that that was the best of all possible worlds oh, yeah yeah that we were there yeah <laughs> we reached utopia <laughs> yeah exactly but for the most of us, it was just being told, this is it now. And and, and you were told, you know, it, you were told that it was embarrassing. There was something embarrassing. I mean, cu- or earlier cultural moments, you know, the counterculture of the 60s and 70s or whatever, were, were seen as just being inherently embarrassing. And what was embarrassing about them was just unproblematically un- un- was their utopianism. Mm. So utopianism was just seen as embarrassing and like dangerous. Yeah, childish or, yeah, childish, yeah. or childish, childish at best and dangerous at worst, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, so I, I, I absolutely think um, we, that is over now. And I think that is really healthy. But also, I think what define if anything defines the status of utopianism in our current moment, it has the gap, the gap between just outright utopianism, and like the only things that might make human like organic life on planet Earth so like remotely sustainable uh, is getting is shrinking by the day. Right. You know, that gap is shrinking all the time to the point where I don't know what the status of the concept of utopianism is going to be in, in another 10 years if we were in a situation. I mean, I do think, you know, I do still think, I, I do think there's a, there probably is a gap between what I think is the political project that we can really reasonably aim for, even though it's very ambitious, which is like the Green New Deal, something like that, and a kind of genuinely utopian aspiration to sort of transcend the limitations of capitalist culture. I think there is still sort of a gap between those things, and it has to be experienced as a productive gap that we have to keep exploring. And I think, you know, the thought of people like Kate Soper, for example, the um, British philosopher who sort of, uh, you know, writes a lot about, finding ways of experiencing you know finding ways of you know she writes about sort of alternative hedonism like how do we experiencing a sort of you know post-materialist or post-consumerist culture as more pleasurable than a consumerist one and how that is a really important dimension of contemporary sort of radical and ecological thought i think that is a really interesting way of thinking about that thinking that about the fact that you can maintain a kind of utopian impulse to your ecological politics even yeah at the same time as sort of trying to aim for a you know relatively achievable set of reforms um but i think but you know the but that gap is like i said i mean that gap is still is shrinking you know we need you know we're, we're, we need very very radical change now mm. um if, if we're going to just make human life tolerable in the next 40 years so we need change that's much more radical than it would have been during the long 90s um and that is going to present challenges to all of us and i don't i don't know what it's going to mean ultimately for the status of a concept of the concept of utopianism i mean it might be that the concept of utopianism itself you know just doesn't doesn't have the same utility in a period when the only realistic thing you can do is extremely radical oh yeah (laughs) yeah okay well um thanks very much for for coming on to, to talk to me um as i said i originally had jeremy talking about this concept on acfm so you can hear him talk about more stuff like like that there um is, is there anything else you'd like to point people towards Jim? no no that's no that's great that was a really interesting chat okay cool thank you well thanks very much for having me that is the end of my conversation with jeremy thank you very much for listening Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode and others, please consider giving me a review on Apple Podcasts and whatever you are listening to this on. That helps with um, 
the discovery bit discoverability that helps with the discoverability of the podcast and, and hopefully we'll just um mean more people will uh will discover it and start listening to it which would be very cool you can get in touch with me if you want to ask me any questions or uh, want to make any suggestions or have any ideas that came out of this episode that you want to mention you can do that by tweeting me at utopian horizons or you can email me on utopian horizons pod at gmail.com i'm in the process of reading a book for the next episode so hopefully that won't take too much longer to to get finished and recorded and all of that stuff but yeah hope you've enjoyed this and uh hopefully i will be back with a new one soon cheers bye bye